Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. SB Nation and Underdog Dynasty present the Underdog Podcast. All right. Welcome to another edition of the Conference USA podcast on underdogdynasty.com, SB Nation's home for G5 football. Uh, Joe Londrigan and Eric Henry here with you as always for Conference USA, though, Eric, it seems like it's been a minute since we've done like a legit Conference USA podcast between uh, doing the draft coverage and talking some uh, newly inducted into the Sunbelt coaches between, you know, Will Hall, and then talking to Grant Trailer about Marshall. Uh, we, we did have that awesome conversation with Seth Luttrell as well, but we haven't done very much Conference USA stuff like uh, like the good old days here. Yeah, I mean, it's a blessing and a curse, right? I guess the blessing is that, not to pat ourselves on the back or tutor on horn, but you know, we're making our way around the uh, CUSA landscape, right? You know, coach is willing to come on the podcast, and that's always appreciated. Definitely, you know, we do this for you guys. Obviously, it's not just for us. So we hope you guys enjoy the perspective of those head coaches, certainly a different perspective, the closest perspective that you can get to the CUSA and in and, and the other cases, uh, Sunbelt programs as well. But the curses, yeah, we haven't had time to just do recaps. But, you know, I think that's fine, Joe. It's a long off season. You know, I, I don't know about you, but I will take the reprieve ever so often of a you know we've had really good guests who have been and this isn't not just saying because they've come on the show but i feel like we've gotten great insight from the guests we've had on um so that and it's a nice reprieve because i mean it's a long off season joe so you know we'll, we'll have plenty of weeks when i'm sure it's just wednesday and i'm you know texting you cusa hot takes at 9 a.m my time which means it's 6 a.m your time and we'll just hop on and record and talk nonsense so uh, i'm sure we'll have plenty of time to make up for lost time right man see this is what i hate about the spring right where it feels like you and i like we work just as hard if not harder as we do in like during the season to make sure that we're you know covering all the news and, and getting all the kind of content out but then at the end of the day there's not even live games to enjoy so like that part sucks <laughs> like it really really sucks but at least we had the draft to kind of at least get uh, a little bit of that itch scratch this week you know eric what was your favorite part of the draft this past week i have to admit you know this to bring our listeners behind the curtain a little bit i planned a little bit of a excursion a very ill time um or a poor time i would say ill time but it was poor time i'm you know, old. So I'm sitting here thinking like, oh, yeah, I got the last day of the draft on Sunday. I'll come back, catch the, uh, you know, last four rounds and forgot that that is now Saturday. So I, I did have a chance to catch the majority of the first round and I caught bits and pieces of the later rounds. Um, so forgive me if I missed something that was just tremendous here. But I, I do have to say, I think my favorite moments were the coach from Blue Mountain State just rambling on because that was great. And he's so unapologetic <laughs> about it now. Like that's, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. If you, if you are a blue mountain state fan and I, and I, I forgot, I didn't even realize he played in the NFL. 
I just almost got from Blue Mountain State. So that was great. And did you see the couple got married at the draft? I mean, I, I, I don't know how you feel. Not to get too derailed, Joe. Do you have any hot takes as someone who was just recently, uh, you know, had his nuptials? Do you have any hot takes on people who get married at odd venues? I mean, obviously, listen, you know, you, you and your lovely bride, Samantha, you, you, you didn't get married at uh, almost at Papa John Cardinal Stadium, uh, whatever that place is called nowadays. But you, you did part of your video there, right? But uh, do you have any hot takes on people who get married just at odd places? <laughs> Listen, I don't, obviously, I'd be a huge hypocrite if I said I did. I don't have a problem with people getting married at venues, right? Like, those those stadiums typically have the accommodations to, you know, throw parties and other kinds of events. Uh, weddings obviously fall into that category, uh, so, no, I don't have a problem with that. What's weird is when people try to do the wedding in the middle of something like the draft. I did think that was odd. You know, who am I to kind of judge someone else's, you know, love story, uh, whatever, however you want to put the whole Nicholas Sparks spin on it. But it's odd, especially since it's the draft. You know what I mean? Like, no one there is, like, fully invested in what you're doing. And typically, it feels like on your wedding day, you want to be the center of attention. And, you know, at best, you are a distraction from the sporting event itself. And then, like, with the draft, too, it's even odder because the number one complaint you hear so much about the draft is it's like, just tell us the picks, like it's enough that you get, you know, random, uh, you know, celebrities trying to eat chicken wings on stage or whatever the hell that was on NFL Network. But like the wedding thing was odd. So, I, you know, if they enjoyed it, more power to them. I was just kind of like, all right, just tell me who this round five pick is, please. Like I want to like I want to move on with my day. And I don't know. I don't feel like you want that to be like what people think of your wedding of all things. Yeah, you see, and listen, I don't want to sound Joe like the like a total pessimist here, but um, and this is in no listen, you and Samantha are gonna ride up to the sunset and live happily ever after together, right? But <laughs> marriage is already a 50-50 proposition as is. Like the best line I heard about marriage, uh, from it's from Dan Levitard, which is if marriage were an American product, it would be recalled by now because of the rate of failure. I don't think you're doing yourself any failure and do yourself any favors by just like throwing in a random venue. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like you should try to do the marriage thing with every single thing heading in the right direction. And again, maybe that's just me being wholly judgmental because I'll admit I'm pessimistic about those things, but what can I say? I, it's hard to argue with famed marriage counselor, Dan Levitard, but at the, <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. It's odd. And, you know, even more so, I think proposals at sporting events are such a huge gamble <laughs> because, A, like, I just from the minor research I've done on the topic, that's probably not what your partner really wants. <laughs> and B, like, if they say no, then you just got turned down in front of a stadium full of people. Like, that's... <laughs> That's bad. And then again, at the wedding, it's again, something goes wrong. Like people are already like just waiting for it to end. So if something goes wrong, like you're doubly screwed. It's it's a dangerous game. Use the venue by all means, but don't do it in the middle of an event. That's what I say. People hate you enough for having a wedding like during, you know, a sporting event, like during a Saturday during college football season, that kind of thing. All right, enough about that. Let's talk about what actually happened with Conference USA at the draft itself. Um, only six players selected, so not CUSA's best draft, but 
Uh, certainly don't want to take away from the guys that did get picked. Uh, not too many surprises on that regard, but we are going to dive into uh, how these guys fit into their respective pro teams and and it's sort of the guys who we thought maybe should have been picked, but maybe just quite missed the cut. Uh, the first one selected for Conference USA was UAB defensive end Alex Wright. Uh, he goes to the Cleveland Browns with the 78th overall pick and oddly enough not the first defensive end from cosa that i thought was going to get picked probably thought it was going to be d'angelo malone but alex wright good for him a just getting selected in the first place um and you know cleveland seems to be loading up a lot on uh defensive talent in that regard so eric do you have any thoughts on alex wright being the first guy off the board for cosa this uh, this past weekend I, I don't want to say, because I listen, by no means do I want this to come, come across as, you know, shading or doubting Alex Wright. You can't be shocked because UAB certainly has a track record over the past years of, you know, having great defensive talent. We all know, you know, the amount of guys they've since the NFL, Jordan Smith and, and, and others, and, you know, how well that defense has been, right? Um, if I had said to you, I guess this is just my thought. And again, I'm not shading Alex Wright by any stretch of imagination. If I had said to you that Alex Wright would go before D'Angelo Malone, uh, before the year, what would have been your thought? I mean, I would have said no way. I mean, the fact if you had said that he would go um, past a former Conference USA Defensive Player of the Year, that that seems crazy. Right. And again, we all know when it comes to, you know, production at the collegiate level is one thing, transitioning and projecting to the next level is another. And that's where it gets tricky, right? And for the record, you know, D'Angelo Malone was picked four picks later. So it wasn't like it was a significant uh, difference in where they were picked. But I will say that's just the first thing that comes to mind when you mention that is, hmm, if you had said to me who would get picked first, D'Angelo Malone or Alex Wright, I would have gone Malone. Now, that being said, I think Cleveland is a really nice landing spot for him because they've had a track record of, you know, really scouting Conference USA really well. When you look at some of the guys who have gone through the Browns, whether it's, you know, being through the draft or free agency. So uh, definitely my thought there, that, that's kind of my uh, first instinct, my first thought there, but, you know, great landing spot. And I, I will say this overall, and, and I guess what, you know, 78 and 82, it's not like it's it's too far in the third, but it, I, it, I wouldn't have been shocked if either of those guys had been second round picks. So that is what, what I'll say in terms of that, but all in all, um, you know, great landing spot for Alex. Yeah, absolutely. And at 6'7", 270 pounds, like he already has like the body to contribute, in my opinion, at the NFL level. And I mean, yeah, like I said, like I was surprised that he didn't go against CUSA defensive player that he didn't go before the CUSA defensive player of the year. But something to keep in mind, he was PFF's pick for CUSA defensive player of the year this past season. And I mean, listen, 46 tackles, seven and a half tackles for loss. Uh, seven of those were sacks. And then he was also, uh, you know, really disruptive in the passing game too. defending three passes, uh, had 12 quarterback hits, two forced fumbles. Like this dude was a menace. So like it, he definitely earned this spot and we'll see what happens with, uh, his NFL career from here. Uh, but with that, let's talk about D'Angelo Malone a little bit more. The, uh, the funny thing about this pick for him and, uh, sort of poetic in a way he gets, uh, to go home to Atlanta, his, uh, his hometown as the Falcons grab him with the 82nd pick. And, you know, I, again, I'm surprised he, he slipped a little bit further than I think a lot of people did just because of a, just the awards he was able to rack up. 
and the the length is really nice at uh, at that defensive end spot in terms of creating separation from the tight ends and, and tackles as he tries to get around the edge there. But um, I mean, we don't have to get into Atlanta's total draft, but like I thought they did a really nice job, and he was just one piece of that. Again, when you look at the Falcons, and, and like so we don't have to get into the whole draft, but certainly could use help in terms of rushing the passer. And D'Angelo Malone is one thing you know about him. That's why I like that, you know, and I guess I can ask you this in the horrible question. If you think he's going to fit more as a linebacker than a defensive end, it seems if most people think he's going to fit more as a linebacker. But I just think, I, you know, maybe I'm biased, but I really think there is a role for D'Angelo Malone as a third down just dedicated pass rusher, right? I just feel like he's that guy who, yeah, I mean, his athleticism might not wow you. He's not one of those freakish athletes like, you know, uh, the defensive tackle's name's escaping me right now. He ran a 4'6 at 340 pounds. But he's just a very, very polished pass rusher. And someone who's been able to add weight onto his frame from the time he, you know, entered um, college from high school. So definitely think, you know, Atlanta's a good landing spot for D'Angelo Malone. And again, I, I just think he's one of those guys Remember like Robert Mathis. I mean, Robert Mathis maybe might be a bad comp because D'Angelo Malone is bigger than him and Robert Mathis relied just on speed. But my point is Robert Mathis wasn't the greatest run defender in the world, but he was a guy, you know, if you put him out there on third down, whether that was on the edge or, you know, you could play him in three, four, the linebacker, outside linebacker, he's going to get to the quarterback. And, and, and that's just kind of my feeling about D'Angelo Malone. Are you thinking of Dwight Freeney maybe? Um, well, I mean, both, both Mathis and Freeney, I mean, both of them on, you know, for that indie uh, defensive line were both excellent pass rushers. Uh, they absolutely were. Wasn't Mathis, well, didn't Mathis play tackle though? Or am I thinking of? No, 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 no. Robert Mathis played on, on the end. I remember that because he's a, he's an HBCU guy and was very undersized. I mean, probably if you go back and look at Robert Mathis, I, I don't know what he's listed off the top of my head. I'll have to look it up, but uh, he was like a safety size <laughs> going off the edge. So, yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah, with with Malone, like he definitely could play kind of that linebacker spot, like, you know, play him back off the line, kind of starting in coverage, like a zone in the flat, that kind of area. But for me, like, I don't know why you wouldn't want him trying to rush the passer simply because of like, again, the arm length, like he just kind of sticks his hands up. And that just sh kind of shuts down that side of the field if you have a quarterback that has average to below average vision, right? Like that, that takes away that entire option. But I think, you know, he might not get playing time right away, but I think he has the physical tools to uh, make it, make an impact in that Falcons defensive, uh, that Falcons defensive attack in the next couple of years here. Yeah. I just looked at a really quick Robert Mathis was listed at, at six two And so I think D'Angelo Malone is taller um, at a six, four and change. So again, that's why that, that comp came to mind. So we'll see, but I, I again, Call me biased, huge fan of D'Angelo Malone. I think he just has a role in the NFL as someone who gets to the quarterback. For sure, for sure. Moving on to the fourth round then, let's talk about Spencer Burford, uh, the UTSA offensive tackle. Uh, it was the first CUSA player off the board on Saturday as the San Francisco 49ers pick him up with a 134th overall pick. Listen, he played fantastic at UTSA over the last few years, was a big part of their uh, title run this past year and you know it, offensive line is one of those positions where it's the most comparable position to like the nba in a weird way whereas with the nba it seems like it's much more common for guys to actually be given a couple of years to develop and reach their full potential and then like that's 
almost expected. Like if you get a guy who is like a superstar right away in the NBA, that's like more rare than the alternative. With the NFL, offensive line is typically like it feels like the position where it's most expected for guys to come in, develop, and then in a few years be at their very best. And I think that's a that's a good place to or that's a good way to describe uh where spencer burford is and what the expectations for him should be in san francisco yeah no i mean i agree with you in that in that assessment because when you look at offensive line in particular i would say offensive and defensive line you can only have and it's not to say you can't draft a bunch of first rounders but obviously you know that'd be great but you're only gonna have so many you know book and the left tackles or right tackles that you draft in the top 10 top 15 you got to be able to as you mentioned, pick uh, offensive or defensive lineman in you know the third, fourth, fifth round, and he maybe sit for a year or two, and and well, I don't mean literally sit. I mean he's he's not a starter. He's a rotational guy, and then by the time he's adjusted to the NFL game, you got a good old line coach. He steps in there year three, four, five, and and has uh, you know a ten year NFL career. So that's a great assessment. And Spencer Burford again, certainly a talented guy. No no doubt about it. You saw what uh, that UTSA both passing and rushing attack were able to do. So uh, San Francisco, definitely a good landing spot. And uh, John Lynch, personal favorite of mine. So good to see the uh, former Tampa Bay Buccaneer. She was a conference for USA player. <laughs> we had a lot of C. We had a we had several CUSA guys go to NFC West teams in this draft, which we'll get into uh, shortly. But for now, Bailey Zappi, let's talk about where he went uh, in this draft. He goes to the New England Patriots with pick number 137, also in the fourth round. This was particularly fascinating to me because amidst kind of the odd criticism that Zappi got in the build-up to the draft, I thought he kind of should have been higher on the overall quarterback prospect list personally. Um, so it's it's interesting to me that he went to the fourth round, but certainly not the weirdest thing that happened with quarterbacks in this draft. Um, overall, I think this is a good spot for him to be in because – he gets to come in and a potentially kind of keep Mac Jones on his toes a little bit. Like Mac Jones had a decent, you know, rookie campaign this past year, um, certainly room to improve, but having the guy who set the NCAA record for single season passing yardage and passing touchdowns right behind you, that's a good spot for that new England offense to be in and be basically being in a position where the starter above him, you know, has just a little bit of an edge on him, but like certainly attainable. Like I'm not saying Bailey Zappi's going to go in and win that starting job, but I think he can make it just interesting enough to like elevate both himself and the other quarterbacks in that room. And who knows in three or four years from now, like he might just end up winning that job or, you know, establish enough of a, uh, you know, uh, a market for himself somewhere else where he can get a starting job later. Um, with the size and the other, you know, tools in his passing game as he maybe gets a little more mobile, that sort of thing. But certainly wouldn't be the first time that we saw a New England second string quarterback earn a really, you know, uh, lucrative opportunity in one way or another down the road. Won't go too extended on Bailey Zappi because, you know, I think you've done a great job of really assessing his game, being our resident hilltopper. But I've said this for a while. I think the NFL comp here is Case Keenum. I'm sticking to that. And Bailey Zappi is obviously a bit bigger than Case Keenum, but I think he's a guy, as you mentioned, who maybe he he comes in and I listen, I, I, I'm a Mac Jones guy personally. So I do think Mac Jones will develop and, and be the starter there in New England. But with that being said, 
you bring in a talented quarterback who can at least keep the other quarterbacks honest, as you mentioned, and he hangs around. Maybe he gets a, a, a start or two here or there. He impresses in the preseason. Of course, you wish the preseason was a little bit longer, short in the preseason. That's just my personal gripe, but nevertheless. And he bounces around, right? And ends up finding that that year where, just like Case Keenum, ends up being the guy and, and establishes, again, a, a 10, 12-year career for him himself. That's been my feeling on Bailey Zappi for a while. So I am sticking to that and certainly can't go wrong with being in the New England Patriots organization. I think we've talked about the Zappy Case Keenum comparison before, and it makes it makes a lot of sense, especially since he passed uh, him, Zappy passed Keenum, not quickly, but towards the end of this season, one of the guys he had to beat in terms of the single season record was Keenum. I think Keenum set that, uh, you know, way back in 2008 or whatever it was. Um, so yeah, certainly makes sense for Zappy. I think that's a good place for him to start his NFL career. And let's go back to uh, another name for UTSA that got picked up, or he was taken with the 153rd overall pick by the Seattle Seahawks in the fifth round. Listen, as a guy who has followed the Seahawks extensively for the last uh, couple of decades, I think this is a really good pick for them. I think after you know that first day when they they picked a couple offensive linemen, um, people were kind of like freaking out because they needed defensive back depth. And they ended up getting it when they got him and Kobe Bryant. But uh, specifically with uh, Tariq Woolen, I mean, he's really big for a cornerback. He's really strong. He can jam people at the line. Um, you know, I wouldn't be too concerned about him, you know, taking most of the receivers in the NFC West one-on-one. -on -one. I think maybe not, you know, Cooper Cup because he was unbelievable last year. Um, but other than that, I think he could be an immediate contributor if he plays his cards right in Seattle. <laughs> I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to put undue pressure on Tariq, right? But uh, Joe, fifth round cornerback, Seattle Seahawks, super athletic, you know, kind of a sleeper. Uh, Who's that remind you of? Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, Richard Sherman. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I don't want to cast that shot on him. However, you look at the 426 40-yard dash, so you know he ain't going to get beat. He's 6'4", 205 pounds. Again, not trying to compare him explicitly to, explicitly, excuse me, to Richard Sherman, but you see a lot of parallels. Huge fan of this pick. And especially because he has those athletic traits, Joe, I think at bare minimum, he's a guy who can come in and contribute on special teams immediately. So definitely be interested to see how that plays out. And as you mentioned, um, <laughs> definitely a, a, a very Seahawks-esque pick right yes like listen the last better part of the last decade people have been a little concerned about the way they draft and that's you know obviously coming from somewhere someone up here in the, in the pacific northwest it's basically based on the way they drafted defensively in this draft i think people are starting to get a little more uh confidence again with them they still need a quarterback but you know we'll see maybe drew lock and geno smith won't be a complete dumpster fire but in my opinion neither of those guys could start in the arena league anyway get back to it before we get off track uh marshall defensive back nazi johnson he was the last pick from conference usa in this draft uh seventh round selection 259 overall by the kansas city chiefs um yeah, you know, I think he was one of the the big parts of, you know, Marshall's defense this past season. Uh, obviously, the defensive line was a big part of that defense as well, but um, certainly made an impact. And, you know, it, it, when you look at, you know, Kansas City, I think they have a 
they've really done well with their defensive backs these last couple of years. Obviously, Eric Berry um, kind of was the, the one that started it all there. And then uh, with, with what Tyron Matthews has been able to do when he was healthy in Kansas City. Um, so he's got some some solid uh, coaches to learn from there and some veteran guys as well who can maybe, you know, help him grow into uh, – into a guy who maybe gets a shot in a couple of years, but we'll see seven, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a toss up with seventh, seventh round selections, right? Like obviously they never really get that opportunity right away, <laughs> but um, you know, there's been one or two seventh round guys that go on to have decent careers. Yeah. Joe, I'm not necessarily looking again, by all means, Najee Johnson could develop into one of those, you know, guys who ends up starting and he was a late round pick, but, and this is just a personal thing of mine. I don't know how you feel about this. I always feel like defensive backs are always the most equipped or one of the most equipped groups to who get picked later and can stick in the NFL, mainly because in today's college football landscape, the majority of coaches are at least playing one, if not two, starting defensive backs on some special teams unit, whether that's yes. punt coverage kick coverage. You know what I mean? Like you're, you have that experience. So it's much different than a receiver. Cause if you're the, you know, your top three receivers in college, you're not playing special teams. If you're a running back in college, you're not, you're very rarely playing special teams. You probably haven't since you were a freshman. Whereas if you're a starting DB, you may have done it as an underclassman, but you're still doing it through your time as a starter. I think Naze Johnson to bring all the way back around here has some of that experience. And I think that'll serve him well and being, being able, excuse me, to, to stick with Kansas City. And also just, again, similar to Tariq Woolen, uh, a very athletic guy who I can easily see, you know, being a, a guy who can contribute on kick coverage as a gunner, et cetera. So uh, definitely keep an eye on that as well. When it comes to overall athleticism in the sport of football, especially at the, the college and, and high school level, folks typically look to quarterback and safety as like, that's where you play your two best overall athletes. Right. And I think what you just said kind of backs that up and, you know, hopefully Nazi Johnson um, takes his athleticism and transition it into an opportunity, but it's most likely going to have to come on special teams first, as you said. All right. So with this past weekend, the deadline has officially passed for players to be able to enter the portal and still be eligible to play in the 2022 season. Um, And it wasn't exactly quiet. Uh, obviously like right after we got done talking with uh, head coach Seth Luttrell of North Texas the other day, Eric um, had a few names from North Texas enter the portal uh, as well. Kind of to be expected uh, happened a little bit all over the league, but you know, just kind of overall thoughts on, on what we saw this past weekend in conference USA on that front. Yeah, Joe. I mean, it's something that you and I've talked off air about that may one deadline for listeners who may not be familiar, may not be up to speed. The May 1 deadline was, or May 1st, was the deadline for all players, or or really all student-athletes, regardless of sport, if they wanted to be eligible for the one-time transfer waiver in which you are eligible immediately to play in the fall or spring, you had to have your name in regardless of sport by May 1. You know, again, this extends beyond college football. You might have seen a few college basketball players and, and, and a few in other sports enter as well. So no surprise that we saw a run of players. And, you know, I'm sure we'll kind of get into some of the ones that stood out and, you know, those who, as far as teams, who listen, we talked about it, Joe. This is free agency. I, I, I know it's a hot topic. Some college football diehards, old school purists are not happy with the roster management, but don't take it from us. 
you had you heard from head coaches on this podcast who said they've had to evolve in the way that they look at roster management and the way they look at the, their offseason in terms of it's like an NFL roster management. And as a matter of fact, as we're taping this at 547 Eastern, Chris Hummer from Yahoo Sports just dropped that Dimitri Emanuel entered the portal uh, late yesterday. So just a quick note again for listeners who may not know, you have to enter by May 1, and then it is on the compliance people to get all of that information processed into the NCAA. You have a 48-hour window, so you may see a few more names between today and tomorrow who may come out. It's not that they're entering late. It's just that that's just the process through compliance. So as we're taping here again at uh, 547, on the second, Demetri Emanuel, Charlotte offensive lineman in the portal. All-conference player, three-year starter. It's a big loss for the Niners, and they've certainly had their their share of losses as well. So, um, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll get into a few names here that, that entered recently and just also some names in general in terms of players who entered the portal. And now that the May 1 deadline has passed, Joe, uh, I believe Seth Luttrell said it in his interview with us that this is kind of the point where it's like, okay, we can breathe a sigh of relief. We know who's going to be with us at least through the fall and into next year. And then we can start to plot from there as far as remaining scholarships, who we want to you know, add in terms of spots where maybe a little bit depleted. Yeah, that's one plus. That's a that's a positive way for for Coach Luttrell to approach this. And, um, you know, we, we spoke to him a little bit about it the other day where, you know, I think it, it doesn't necessarily change too much in terms of you always want your program to be attractive for guys who are looking for the best opportunity after the fact, whether that's pro or now the P5s, now that it's much more attainable. Um, but, you know, it seems like that's what we are hopefully, I mean, for their sake, hopefully probably going to see with some of these G5 guys that are jumping into the portal at the last moment. Um, and you mentioned Dimitri Emanuel. Um, he just kind of, the fact that he left just kind of adds to the, you know, holes that Charlotte needs to plug for the 2022 season. Um, I know we were talking a little bit about the other things that, um, you know, Charlotte needs to uh, fill and probably the same can be said of several teams within this league. So Eric, I know you wanted to talk about winners and losers. Um, and when it comes to the the transfer portal um, so far this off season, uh, where do you want to start on that front? Yeah, well, you know, I, I want to start do it in terms of winners and losers. I just think, again, the transfer portal has affected each team in, in Conference USA to a certain extent. I'm just going to throw out a few that I believe have been affected uh, most in terms of whether it's, you know, losses or incoming players, you know. So I, I don't know if, uh, if you know, that makes sense. You follow it that way, Joe. But uh, I'll start with the team. And again, I, I definitely want to get your thoughts. I know you have some names there as well that have, have caught your eye, but Let's go ahead and start with Middle Tennessee, Joe. Very quietly, they've lost a lot of talent. Let's run down these. These are all names that you know and listeners of our podcast know being you know, fans of Conference USA. Shatan Mobley, gone. Quincy Riley, outside linebacker, uh, gone. Uh, Gerante Davis started, I believe it was their second or third leading tackler, gone. Greg Great was their leading tackler. So no, J.D. Davis should have been third. So I know Greg Great and Reed Blankenship obviously were the first two. Um, Blankenship obviously graduated and signed a free agent deal, but Greg Great, gone, Jackson State. They very sneaky, Joe, lost three offensive linemen. Uh, Dorian Hinton, um, Robinson, I'm forgetting Robinson's first and right now, right now. And um, the kid, uh, Loyola, um, uh, Lagoya, I'm forgetting his, his uh, first name as well, too. I'm trying to recall this from, you know, game notes from six, seven months ago. 
but that's three starting offensive linemen who they lost. So that's seven starters total. In Middle Tennessee, the only notable addition I saw um, was the kid Boykin from uh, West Virginia, if memory serves me correct, where he came in from. was a four-star recruit. Uh, and Lance Robinson is the guard I was thinking of. Yeah, uh, he he has gone. Hinton, Dorian Hinton, he may actually be heading to Florida Atlantic. I have not seen a destination for him yet, but I'll leave it to you on this. And, you know, I'm sure you'll agree as a former offensive lineman, you lose three starting offensive linemen, not to graduation, but to the portal at this level. That's that's very tough to replace. Absolutely. I mean, just the chemistry that you lose when you have starters exit when odds are they probably haven't had that much you know, time to gain meaningful game experience in the first place. That's tough. That's tough. And that, you know, that nucleus that they create and the shorthand that they inevitably have to create in order to keep that middle, you know, that middle of the field plugged up to create that pocket uh, to give your quarterback time to actually get the offense going. Like that's, that's tough. I think people kind of underestimate that. Um, and it's it's no different at any level of football, at the P5, the G5, high school, JUCO, whatever. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, that's what, One of the interesting things about the portal is I think the fact that it creates opportunities for that position group, right? Like, I think a, a lot of this is kind of um, – focused on the the skill position guys who jump you know in and out of the portal but offensive linemen are doing it too obviously you know we saw it with uh kane madden at marshall last year and him come in and be a contributor for notre dame right away and uh it's going to be the same with a lot of these guys well joe i mean again you talk about offensive linemen i'll let you elaborate more on these guys again you being the resident hilltopper West Kentucky makes my list of top five CUSA teams who've been, you know, really affected by the portal as far as a depending on some guys are bringing in, but also names they lost. You lose Mason Brooks and Cole Spencer right there as a two veteran offensive linemen, and you know some of the others with Beanie Bishop and Mitchell Tinsley's. Mitchell Tinsley's. I'm sure you know you can elaborate more on on the Hilltoppers and kind of a what they lost and b what they're going to be expecting as far as guys they brought in. Yeah, on the skill position front, not that I'm not bummed that um, Mitchell Tinsley left and some of those other guys went to pursue other opportunities. I think I'm just not as concerned because I think they Tyson Helton's staff have done a better job building depth in the receiver room over the last couple of years than I think they have in the offensive line area, right? They still have Daywood Davis. They've got these guys from uh, from the MAC, uh, Michael Matheson, I believe, from Akron uh, coming in, who I think he's going to be a legit deep threat right away. So I'm not as concerned there. They still have Joshua Spencer if he can stay healthy. But yeah, Mason Brooks and Cole Spencer departing, I think that is a it's a bigger blow than I think people realize. One of the reasons that... Uh, Western had as tough a year as they did in the last season of Mike Sanford's tenure was they played so many different offensive lines and dealt with so many injuries and, and issues on that front. It was so hard to create that chemistry that I was talking about. And, you know, other teams were in the backfield nonstop. Now, I think the good thing here is they still have all summer and all fall camp to kind of figure out what they have and what they want to do in that front. But practice in camp is not, you know, game experience, like I said. So that's tough. 
but at the very least they they have you know it's not the same situation as that last season of Mike Sanford because I think they have the opportunity to kind of build that nucleus a little more throughout the summer but there's simply no replacing veteran offensive linemen like right away there's no quick fix for that um even if you bring in somebody um obviously they they have the the South Carolina guy um that came in earlier this offseason i think he's going to be important but there's no um there's no quick fix for the leadership and the gel that those kind of guys bring to your locker room and to that kind of unit who have to you know communicate non-verbally and quickly every single play sure undoubtedly and especially when you're talking about bringing a new quarterback now granted you have two quarterbacks who came in to the portal came in from the portal in austin reed and jared daigie who are veterans, right? They've played a lot of games, but still, you know, it's nice to have, I'm sure you'd feel a lot more comfortable. You had those veterans coming back. Uh, Joe, before you transition to the next team, something mm-hmm. I, I did think was funny. Uh, when you look on two, four, seven sports, Austin Reed's little is his transfer portal thing where it says you're old school and new school because he came from a division two school in West Florida. They don't have a logo for it. So they have like this mock university, schoolhouse building (laughs) (laughs) yeah it it looks like do you have like a museum in tampa growing up that you would go to where it would talk about like pioneer days or whatever like that's what it looks like a little like pioneer schoolhouse i i I can't say that we had that in tampa you know the closest thing that would probably mons venus uh for anyone who's from tampa you'll get that reference um i'm not gonna explain it but outside of that no yeah i i get the the point you're making that's (laughs) it just looks like like the little old red wagon or the red like schoolhouse out front you know from like the house in the prairie days <laughs> very tom sawyer it's funny <laughs> uh but but joe you know All one right. other team i do want to ask you about or two teams i should say um north texas just because we just had seth latrell on joe what's your thoughts um and i know i mentioned this to you off air as it was happening we had or we sorry seth latrell had three defensive linemen transfer within what eight hours of us recording the podcast with him <laughs> what goes through your mind when you, when you think about that? In addition to the fact that they already lost the Murphy twins as is, who are, you know, two super talented players at UCLA, but the fact that they lose three guys in the span of eight hours, uh, uh, that's interesting, right? Yeah. You know, it. the fact that they all came from the same position group is odd to me. And I think it could be seen as a good or a bad thing. You know, you mentioned the guys from UCLA, uh, and then also when you have Dion Noville, who had as strong of a year as they did, I, I think it's one of two things um, as an uneducated guess. I mean, A, you could have these – it could be these guys trying to capitalize on that momentum that those situations created and try to just you know capitalize on that and position it, uh, help themselves get in position for a better opportunity. Or B, like, I don't, you know, I don't know. Is there something odd that just, that just made the entire defensive line say, I'm out. You know, I don't know. I'm not going to speculate on that front, but, or they kind of looked at how bad the North Texas defense was last year um, prior to that, that six game winning streak. And just, and even in, and even so the, <laughs> the defense wasn't amazing in that regard anyway. Um, but I think it, it creates a scenario where, you know, you have to wonder like, is everybody bailing because they don't want to be part of that North Texas defense anymore, or are they capitalizing on, the the positive things that you said and try to get in a position before things get worse you know what i mean 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just interesting, Joe, because if you go and look at the guys they've brought in, they brought in one defensive lineman, but it's not like they brought in a ton. You know, I can understand. I'm just like, all right, we've got – they brought in four or five defensive linemen, a couple of guys at my spot, so I'm going to get out of here. But the only one is uh, from Western Michigan and Mazin – excuse me, not Western Michigan, Eastern New Mexico and Mazin Richards. So, you know, again, it's not like there's a ton of guys coming in. So that's definitely going to be a position of need for – Seth Luttrell's club. And last but not least, I, I, it'd be remiss if I didn't talk about FIU, not just because I cover FIU, but Joe, I, I, and I think I've, I don't know if we've had this conversation on air. I'm more than sure I've mentioned to you off air. What do you make of the fact that Southern Miss gave up? I want to say it was 50 something sacks last year. FIU was, was 13th, second to last in conference USA, allowing 45 sacks yet three offensive linemen from that unit went to power five programs in miles frazier at lsu sione Fanau at purdue and i guess you know colorado state isn't technically a power five but they're a larger program in dante keys mm-hmm. i think i'm again i think i said this to you off air but that knowing the fact that three offensive linemen and very early on this was not late this was probably a week or two after the season ended these guys all found spots it's caused me joe to not that i have a greater appreciation for the whole line i always did but I am getting rid of the phrase sacks allowed out of my verbiage because it just goes to show that sacks allowed are certainly not a byproduct of, I'm not going to, okay, let me not say exclusively not a byproduct. There are a myriad of factors that go into the quarterback being sacked. It's not just exclusively offensive line talent because clearly didn't have an issue there. The fact that three starters from last year's group are are, essentially the power five. Yeah, exactly. Offensive line has just always been one of those positions where you really have to watch the tape and watch the the technique that these guys, you know, play with, right? Not to say that you don't with other positions, but with the offensive line, it's so important to know, like, can this guy get, you know, his massive frame down and into a position where he can create leverage and get that momentum off the off the ball? Whereas with, you know, receivers like it's it's just it's just different there any number of things could happen whereas with the the battles in the trenches between the offensive and defensive line it's it's like a wrestling match every time you know what i mean like and am i making sense like i i want to make sure that people understand like when offensive linemen and and defensive linemen do those those one-on-one drills the like test of wills that is every time whereas like uh, it's it's more of like a tactical thing when you talk about like trying to you know scheme receivers and running backs against uh, like defensive backs and linebackers more so I think. Well, you know, before we transition to you know kind of nil, I know it's kind of where I want to go next, but I want to ask you this again as yeah. someone has a really you know passion for O line play, Joe. Want to ask you this because mm-hmm. I had a coach kind of give me this hypothetical. Yeah, an assistant coach in CUSA kind of give me this, this, or I should say theory. And I'm going to give you the theory and then ask you a question as well. His theory was offensive line is one of the hardest positions to recruit because the level of coaching at high school is just so subjective, right? You can, you may have a a former NFL player comes back and is the O-line coach at the high school, or you may just have, you know, Billy Bob, a varsity blues reference down the block right who's the who's the 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 strength coach slash o-line coach slash you know security guard at the local bank who's coming in and coaching up the offensive line there's obviously such a a variance in how those positions are coached 
So it's so hard to recruit them and that the bigger schools, quote unquote, may miss talents such as Fanau or Frazier who end up at the G5 initially, but then those guys excel at G5 and then they say, huh, we really need an O-line play. Let's just scout G5. As opposed to trying to recruit uh, an offensive lineman out of college, out of high school, which again can be a crapshoot. If we got a guy at the G five level who's showing, all right, maybe we miss him the first time around, but we can get him after a couple of years at the G five level. It's really going to cause just a, a issue for group of five head coaches to maintain talent across the offensive line. So hopefully that all made sense to you, and you're able to kind of form a thought there because I know I kind of rambled a bit. Having. Uh... I grew up in Ohio, right? So I kind of got familiar um, during the time I was playing with, um, you know, I, I have friends who played um, offensive line at, at some of the Mac schools and, you know, had aspirations to, you know, one day play at, you know, Ohio State, Cincinnati, those kind of schools. And the recruiters at those schools, at schools like Ohio State, Cincinnati, um, you know, the the bigger, the the AAC schools, Big E schools, um, the big 10 schools, those kind of things a lot more concerned with physical characteristics as opposed to actual play. They seem to think if I can get like a physical specimen more, so I can teach the technique that's needed to play it at a high level. And a lot of times they're right. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) they don't have those, you know, reputations that they do in, in the big 10 and the sec and whatnot by accident. But they, they definitely have the mindset that if I can get a big, you know, a big dude with a strong base who has, uh, you know, smaller ankles and wide shoulders, I can teach him, you know, how to play football. It's, it's kind of the same. Um, <laughs> this is a bad comparison, but, you know, in the longest yard, the one dude that's like, will you teach me to football? It's <laughs> kind of the, it's, it's an oversimplification, but that's more or less their mindset. Like they want a big dude that they can mold, you know, from a technique standpoint, but, you know, they can't teach size, right? The problem with that philosophy is you have a lot of kids who bloom late, who don't figure out the right diet and, you know, weightlifting plan until they're juniors when, uh, or like late in their junior year. And then they have a breakout senior season uh, on the offensive line, Um, especially in, you know, some of these other areas where, um, you know, hate to break it to you, but like not every school has like the best equipment, you know, trying to get kids molded into perfect athletes from seventh grade on. Right. But before I ramble too much, I think the, you know, result of, of what I'm trying to say is with G fives, they kind of get second dibs on the player pool after the P fives, right? The P fives get the most uh, impressive physical specimens the G5s come in and grab the guys who maybe bloomed a little bit late and who maybe, you know, focused on the technique first um, and didn't get to rely on like the physical tools and then developed the physical tools a little bit later. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And again, I'm not saying my theory is right. I'm not just saying that coach's theory is right. I just think there's, it's something that I think is interesting. And I may do a deep dive during this off season. It's just to, the amount of, and I'll start with Conference USA and then go through all the G5s. Joe, it would not surprise me if the position that you see most, and again, I haven't done the numbers, so I haven't crunched the numbers, so don't hold me to this, but it wouldn't surprise me if the position you saw most, um, that attrition to the Power 5 level is offensive line, because A, there's a premium on offensive line talent, 
and B, you, you can't find enough of it at different places, you know? So I think it's something to, to definitely keep an eye on. But yeah, those are the schools, Charlotte, Middle, North Texas, FIU, Western Kentucky, just in terms of the transfer portal. I think they have uh, definitely some 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 holes to fill. And it'll be interesting to see how they go about because now with the May 1st deadline in the rearview mirror, they know who's with them going forward and they can start to plug those holes with remaining scholarships. And I, I know it triggers people, but they can sign free agents, right? <laughs> That's the best way I can put it. Yeah, it's an apt comparison, which I think is a solid segue to, you know, talk about the the NIL and and how that kind of situate the NIL situation rather and how that's kind of developing. Um, we saw over the weekend um, Isaiah Wong, right? And here's the thing. I'm up on the – I've read a lot into the legalese and what kind of you know happened on the business side of this situation with the Miami basketball player. That being said, Eric, I, I, I have not been able to really bring myself to care very much about college basketball as a fan for a couple of years. So Isaiah Wong, that's the kid's name, right? Yes. Okay, just making sure, just making sure. Um, but kind of the, the basic background um, that has – unfolded um since the situation started which was a, a few days ago now um but essentially isaiah wong uh played on the university of miami's basketball team and when he came in he signed uh, a couple nid nil deals uh namely with life wallet the owner of which is a guy by the name of john ruiz a well-known businessman in miami area and now that miami had a successful ncaa tournament run uh, the the news that came out, um, which, you know, Isaiah Wong has kind of said, like, there's more to it, essentially. Um, essentially, what his agent, for the lack of a better term, said was, because he has positioned himself as a key force on this Miami team and is significantly, you know, because he has shown his quality of play to be of a high level – he wants more NIL money or he's going to transfer. Now, he has since cleared it up. He's going to stay at Miami now. But this was the topic, a highly spirited topic of conversation uh, over the weekend on uh, on Twitter and, and other similar platforms. So, um, Eric, I know you have thoughts. I have thoughts. But I want to yield the floor uh, to you first in this regard. Yeah, Joe. I thought the Wong situation was interesting. Obviously, a different sport, right? I, I, there are a myriad of reasons. I know you, you led with the fact that you, you haven't paid a ton of attention to college basketball, but you don't have to be a huge basketball fan to know when you're dealing with 15 players on a roster versus 80, 90, 100, certainly a, a different dynamic there as far as leverage and things of that nature. This is really my big thing that I kind of want to dive into with the um, Ruiz situation, John Ruiz, the, the local billionaire from South Florida, uh, you know, has UM affiliations. And uh, you mentioned Life Wallet and certainly uh, a deep wallet <laughs> that uh, Mr. Ruiz has. I, I, I think it's this. Um, I'm going to start with the Wong situation. I have no issue with a player, I, I, for lack of a better word, pulling that move. I just think here's what I'll say to bring it to the football realm. I don't think you're going to see, and this could be naive of me, Joe, I don't think you're going to see someone do that in college football. The reason being, while Maurice Claret, you know, was kind of the one of the, uh, the pioneers of where we're at today, you still got to be three years removed from high school, and there is not a viable alternative to go earn money, right? It's like, and I, really... 
if you do that as a football player, you're essentially banking or betting that you have another offer out there from some donor or someone affiliated with the school who's going to give you an offer, right? As opposed to with Wong in basketball, look, if he didn't get what he wanted by May 1 and he didn't have a potential offer lined up, the G League's calling, Europe is calling, and he can still, you know, make solid money, right? So I think in the college football realm, I, it, it would be hard pressed in my mind. Again, it could be naive of me to see someone pulling that that power play. But again, listen, uh, there are certainly a myriad of people within college football, especially at the power five level, who have deep pockets. And maybe that's naive of me. But I did want to spin it around to this again with John Ruiz. And I think this is where listeners of this podcast will find the most interest. If you look at uh, the athletes that Ruiz has given NIL deals to, he signed a myriad of athletes, not just football players for Miami, damn near every sport, uh, women's soccer, I believe there's a tennis player, he's gone across the board, but he also signed two FIU players, Tyrese Chambers and Rivaldo Fairweather. And uh, I, you know, I, I don't want to slander Mr. Ruiz, Joe, but <laughs> listen, man, you live in the Pacific Northwest. If, if uh, I got it, not if Portland, there we go, Portland State, right? Uh, I was trying to think of a smaller school. If Portland State had two players who got 50 grand deals from Phil Knight, you would assume at some point in time, they're going to make their way over to uh, to Oregon, right? It's the same thing here with, with, and again, Tyrese had opportunities. He entered the portal. He had opportunities to leave FIU, but you can't be comfortable knowing that a Miami donor uh, or a power five in general, a different school has put two players of yours on payroll for his life wallet deal. It's almost as if you're saying, Hey, come see how we do business over here. And if you have another good year next year, we'll put you in, in orange and gold, right? Or orange and, and green, excuse me, orange and gold, orange and green in, in Miami. Right. And that's something that I think you have to take note of. Um, for players across the G5 landscape, because it, it's not just going to be Ruiz. It's it's gonna you're gonna have this circumstance across college football. So I think that's the thing that I think you have to find most interesting. And listen, I, I'll I'll leave you before I ramble. I'll leave you your thoughts on that, and I, I'll kind of present what could be a way that Group of Five schools can counter that, um, or at least compete with the Ruizes of the world. Yeah, you know, I think. It, it is going to be interesting to see how G5s start to figure this out because I think in the vast, vast majority of cases, every state, region, whatever, has its own John Ruiz, right? There is a, you know, a wealthy figure who wants to see their alma mater succeed in this regard and attract the best players. And <laughs> someone is going to try to use that influence um, to get these players there from G5s, like, you know, like the FIUs of the world. And I think basically it's it's just going to put athletes in a scenario where they need to educate themselves on the legality of these situations. Uh, and it's an opportunity for college athletes to understand that legal contracts are binding. Sure. Um, like the one with, yeah, like the one um, that Isaiah Wong signed with life wallet, right? Um, that locked him into a certain compensation rate for a, a certain 
stretch of time. And you can't get out of that until the contract's up or you typically have to pay some sort of penalty to get out of that contract, whatever that might be. Um, and if your plan is to go to a G5 for a year or two and try to get a P5 opportunity, and there's nothing wrong with that if you're coming out of high school or a JUCO, whatever, don't sign a four-year deal with uh, a regional company or a company who signed you because of your affiliation to the G5 that you originally signed with. Because that's going to create problems down the road. And listen, we knew as these new NIL rules kind of came into effect, we knew there was going to be these kind of hiccups. And this is what we're seeing. Now, I think because situations like this are happening now in the first, what's it been like 12 months since these rules started? Um, yeah. Because this is happening now, we're going to start seeing the rules. Maybe not the rules change drastically but we are going to see these next generation of, or not next generation is the wrong word. Recruits from these next three or four classes notice the mistakes that these kids make in that regard, locking themselves into certain situations that, you know, they can transfer, but that doesn't, you know, necessarily get them out of their obligation to the companies that they sign contracts with, like what LifeWallet's done here. And I have a couple more points on that yeah, kind of yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, first of all, I thought the fact that it seems like this kid wanted his NIL pay increased because of his play on the field. Uh, I want to credit Nicole Arbach because she said this first and I wholeheartedly agree with it. NIL and pay for play are not the same thing. It seems like this UM kid, at least based on what was in the media originally, wanted his payday to change based on how well he played. And that's not what NIL is. The reality and what uh, a lot of professional athletes are going to have to do is show that, hey, because I made the playoffs, won a championship, whatever it is, that led to this tangible growth in my brand, whether that's social media presence, whether that's uh, the amount of people that are asking him to do media, that sort of thing. You have to show that your, you know, the value of your name, image, and likeness is increasing and provide that tangible proof of that. And I tell this to kids that I teach marketing to all the time. You can't just go in and say like, okay, this is a good marketing plan because it's what I feel. You will get laughed out of a room if you do that. You have to provide tangible proof. So if you can show that your market value on the NIL scape has increased because of your play and you can provide tangible proof of that, by all means, have those conversations. But you can't just say, I, you know, I went to the Elite Eight, I went to the Final Four, I won a championship, whatever, I deserve more NIL money. That's not how it works in any, in any capacity in any industry. And you mentioned the regulation aspect of it. I'm definitely not an economist, so I don't know what that would look like. But I think it is important to note, and this is another big piece of news that came out in the last week. Uh, NCAA President Mark Emmert is going to be done next year. Um, he's going to be retiring prior to the 2023 academic year, I think. So as the NCAA prepares for a new era there, and as they find someone to replace him, it's naive to think it's not going to be at the top of their list to create that kind of system. You know, in, in a capitalist society, they're going to try to 
create their, you know, reestablish control of that market and get more money for themselves out of it. It's, it's naive to think otherwise. So as they search for Mark Emmett's replacement, you can be damn sure that's going to be an interview question, right? So if anyone else is uh, trying to build up their candidacy for NCAA president, start building up an answer to that. So that's kind of my two cents on it. All right. So I'm not letting you quite off the hook yet, uh, professional sure. marketer Joe Lonergan, right? So look, Nicole Auerbeck is 100% correct that NIL is not pay for play, right? Th that can't be stated enough. However, I again think it would be naive of us to think <laughs> pay for play has been going on well before NIL. Let's just get that out of the uh, on the record right now. Um, Absolutely. I think, I think it'd be naive of us to think that should a player, regardless of sport, if their value on the court or field has risen and they go and they have signed, and listen, all great points you've made in terms of you've signed, a, this is what you've signed. Uh, if you're going to want to get out of this, you're going to have to cough up some cash. Joe, I, don't, I have no doubt in my mind that if player X is at school X and he signed a document and again, we're not lawyers here, but let's say he signed a deal for 50 grand, right? It ain't that hard for some of these big money people to come like, Oh, wait a minute. I want you at my school. Okay, fine. I'll, I'll front that money. No big deal. Now, now, now the optics of this, right? I'm waiting for the first, I don't want to use the Ruiz as example, Mr. Ruiz as an example, but someone like that, to take a kid to court and say, oh yeah, <laughs> you're breaking my deal because of so on and so forth. Um, unless they're gonna write in those NIL deals, no ifs, ands, or buts, you have no outs out of this. Um, and then that's again, where we need to start <laughs> getting these kids to start reading these things, you know, with a fine tooth comb. But that's, that's point one, right? Point two in terms of marketing value, um, I, I, I debated as to whether I was going to make this point on the podcast, but because I didn't want to stray too far away from football. But I do think since you talk about market value and you are someone who is very adept in marketing, this point, I, it would be remiss if I didn't mention this point, because I, I think eventually it will be something that affect college football. So listeners, bear with me. I'm going to try to make this succinctly. I know I've mentioned the Cavender twins, Hannah and Haley, on this podcast before. They are the former... Fresno State women's basketball players, I say former because they recently signed with, spoiler alert, Miami. Uh, Mr. Ruiz has signed them to deals. Why do I reference them? They earned $250,000 contracts uh, apiece for each of them from Boost Mobile uh, in terms of NIL the night that NIL dropped over a year ago, right? I want to be very careful in the way I say this because I, I, I don't want to... I just want to be careful. But as a marketer, I'm sure you'll follow me here. You have two very marketable athletes, and you can punch in your Google machine, Cavender Twins, and see as to why I say they are very marketable, traditionally marketable. Um, their value in Fresno, California, is certainly not what their value is in Miami, Florida, right? For a myriad of reasons. Again, I, I don't I don't want to be too blunt, but you can use Google and see why I, I, I think that there's more marketing opportunities for them in South Florida, right? Given the fact that they are traditionally marketable as female athletes, read between the lines. 
the Kavner twins, and, and this is where I will say this directly, they came out and made a statement, Joe, that this transfer had nothing to do with money. It was essentially a better opportunity to go to the NCAA tournament. Be that as it may, they are very good players. They are all conference players, so I'm not demeaning their talent on the court. However, if it were about making the tournament, uh, you could go to UConn, right? However, as I said, the marketing abilities, the marketing opportunities in South Florida on a beach for your TikTok and Instagram are higher than being at Mario Sub Shop in Hartford in the middle of the winter, right? So to bring it all the way back around, Joe, this is my point. Their value in terms of being in South Florida as opposed to Fresno is going to roughly go from 250 grand to I would be stunned if they're not making six figures this year or, or seven, excuse me, seven figures uh, this year, right? That's something you're going to have to take into effect to bring it all the way back around to G5s if you find someone who is extremely marketable in the football realm, their value is going to mean more in a bigger market. Now, that doesn't mean that that precludes them from playing in a group of five at a group of five school, but you better have someone who's able to pony up the funds or these NIL collectives like you've seen at UCF, at FIU, at others are going to have to do more to retain these players. So again, I know I left you with a ton there. Hopefully you had a chance to, you know, if, if you needed a refresher on the Kavner twins and why they're marketable, you had your Google search, but that is something I think you're going to have to take into effect in the marketing aspect of this. I mean, yeah, I, again, I think it speaks to the difference in the pay for play, the difference in the NIL versus pay for play, right? Like the Kavner twins, they have that, you know, they have their audience. I don't disagree that for any kind of social media influencer, Miami is probably a better place to be than Fresno. So like, I don't think if like um, I'm trying to think of like a comparable like a football example. Who's, who's like who's like a home? Who's like a kid who stayed home in the G5? Like stayed at a a school like close to like close to home. Uh, man, I, I'd, I'd have to rack my brain there. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty. You know, from recent G5s that success. I mean, I, I I'm going to default to UCF and say, um, you know, someone like Blake Bortles. Okay. There's a, there's a great example. Yeah, and uh, Blake Blake Bortles is from uh, oh, the Central, right Central the Florida. Corner, yeah, he's okay. From five miles from UCF's campus. Yeah, I mean, there you go. The fact that Bortles had the opportunity to kind of build his you know reputation with Central Florida. I mean, if he tried to go to a place like I don't know USC, Oregon, Washington, that sort of thing, and try to do the same kind of things he was doing from an NIL standpoint, it probably wouldn't work, right? Like, I'm not saying that those kind of schools don't have the tools to make them relevant in the NIL space, but you more or less have to start over, right? Like, you're not starting with anything. You're not starting with what you had at Central Florida. Does that make sense? And I think you could apply the same kind of thing if he transferred to, like, another G5. I don't know. I think we're, we're getting into the weeds a little bit here, but, again, I think – the same thing that happened with the Cavender twins can kind of apply to this kid from Miami in that, you know, I don't think the Cavender, I don't, I don't think the playing aspect had too much really to do with, you know, it, it's debatable whether or not that was like the main motivation for the transfer. And I think you could say the same thing about this other kid. And it's only a matter of time before we see something similar in the football world, in my opinion.
Uh, I'll save our listeners the again the the marketing lesson for another time. But you and I, we do have some differences of opinion on, on how we see this because I, I do disagree with 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 your assessment of the Blake Bortles thing. But again, we won't make this a marketing class. <laughs> you know, the, we'll, we'll spare the listeners that and and, and just say, um, all in all, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that there's going to be a need for regulation, as mm-hmm. you mentioned, Mark Emmert uh, out of the NCA post in, in short order. So whoever takes over is going to have that task on their hands because this is going to be a very complicated conversation. And I don't think that G5s are, are going to be spared um, using the Cavender twins as an example, but you can use plenty of a football player as an example. It's just only it's it, it, Joe. This is my, my last point. You can, mm-hmm. if you, if we'd had, I remember I wrote the article and I used the term free agency four years ago and people were up in arms and you see where we're at. Right. So I, I only use the Kavner twins as just saying it, it can happen in football and it probably will in short order where players from smaller schools who cannot compete for a myriad of reasons, whether it be um, financially or location or others, they're going to start losing players for things that aren't necessarily on the feet on the field or on the court. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that point. I think with that, we are, just about done with uh, today's talking points, but I know we're going to be back soon. Uh, it's going to talk about uh, a, hopefully we get a few more coaches on here uh, to talk about the 2022 COSA season. Uh, we'll probably have some more undrafted free agent news to discuss as those deals start to uh, get finalized throughout the NFL. Congrats to those guys. Um, hopefully have some other, uh, some other folks go for, I don't know, some USFL, yeah, USFL deals down the road, uh, something like that. Um, but congrats to all those guys getting their pro opportunities. Um, and a programming note on the general UDD side in the near future, we are going to try to bring you more Sunbelt content, uh, through some of our other friends in the Twitter space and, and whatnot. And, um, you know, we know we've, we've heard you guys loud and clear. We know you want more Sunbelt stuff and, uh, we're doing our best to get it to you very quickly. Um, so thank you all so much for listening. If you want to follow us on Twitter at J O E H I O underscore, um, at Eric C. Henry underscore, and of course, at Underdog Dynasty for more G5 football content every day. Uh, shout out to those of you all that uh, watched our, or read our draft coverage uh, over the past weekend. Uh, meant a lot to us, and uh, hopefully we'll continue to uh, keep busting our butt to do more. Happy football watching, everybody. We'll talk to you soon.